That's okay, all right? So the turning point of John's gospel, right? Um, If you read through John's gospel, you'll realize that from the very beginning, he starts to do signs and wonders that, that marvel in the eyes of the people, that they're attracted to the signs and the wonders. And remember the first sign that he does? He's at a wedding in Cana of Galilee with his mama. Remember that? And the steward had not been a good steward, dropped the ball, did not have enough wine to last throughout the festival time. And so this poor young couple, in the midst of their embarrassment, Mother Mary seeks to save them. She goes over to Jesus and whispers to him, son, they have no wine. In other words, do something about this, please. And remember, he pushes back a little bit on his mama. Remember what he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And John says that, that that was one of the first signs that Jesus gave. And of course, if you got a strong Jewish mama and she asked you to do something, you do it anyway. <laughs> and he did, and he did. My hour has not yet come, though, Jesus says. In, in other words, my greatest moment, my greatest miracle, my greatest sign is not going to be turning water into wine. It's not going to even be that day that I'll walk on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. My greatest sign won't even be raising Lazarus from the dead, which is the last of the seven signs. No, those are glorious. They point to my glory. But my most glorious moment is here. Let's turn to chapter 12 of John's Gospel. Here is where Jesus' most glorious moment appears. Chapter 12, if you go to the New Testament and take a right, you'll land there. And we're going to talk about three things today. Cross-shaped glory, cross-shaped beauty, and cross-shaped lives. All right, but first, cross-shaped glory. Now, now notice in chapter 12, verse 20, where we started out, the Jews have come from all over the world, and they're gathering together in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And it says in verse 20 that among those Jews that came to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. And in verse 21, it says, So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip both went together and told Jesus. And then Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now note that. You know, he's doing all these miracles, all these signs that point to his glory. And yet he kept saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. His hour has now come. His hour has come. Now John never tells us whether these Greeks actually got an audience with Jesus. But what he does is he uses their question in order to frame a dialogue about the glory of Jesus. He pulls back the veil between us and Jesus, and shows us his glory face to face. I think that it was time now because the window of salvation had been opened. If you look right after the raising of Lazarus, the last sign, right before our reading today, it says that the Pharisees said, look, the whole world has gone after him. Now that's an interpretive clue. The whole world's gone after him, Next verse, some Greeks came to worship him and see his glory. So what 
John is saying is that now salvation is freely given to Jews and Greeks and male and female and slave and free because of his glory, what he's about to do. He's no longer just the Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah of the entire world. And Jesus' glory is a cross-shaped glory. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, let me tell you about my glory. Look at verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, whenever you see that in the Bible, listen up. Jesus is saying what I'm about to say is very important that you take it into your heart and you understand it. I love the old King James Version. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, right? Look at what he says. This is important. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, let's unpack that. We know that in two Fridays from now, Jesus is going to die. It's Good Friday. We know that he is the wheat that must fall into the ground and die, right? But why is that wheat alone until it dies? Why is it alone? Why is Jesus alone? Well, here's the deal. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the only perfect man that ever walked the face of this earth. That Jesus was the only man who lived a righteous, obedient life before the Father without fail. Only Jesus enjoyed a right relationship with the Father. Soon as Adam and Eve sinned, not another man or another woman walked righteously with God except for Jesus. Remember at his baptism? What does God say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Remember at his transfiguration? The voice comes down from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Only Jesus enjoyed an unfettered relationship with the Father. Only Jesus could, could be in the holiness of the Father and not die. You know, sin and God can't cohabitate. They can't come into the same space. So only Jesus alone had that kind of relationship with the Father. That is until atonement's made, until the wheat falls into the ground and dies, until Jesus pays away, paves away for everlasting life to all people because his time has come. Remember, his mission was not to leave us alone, not to only have a relationship with the Father, but to bring the whole world. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. His mission was not to remain alone, but in order for us to be included in God's family, the wheat must go into the ground and die. He must give his life for sinners' sake. In order to be saved, Jesus must be lost before God. In order for us to have joy, Jesus must be crushed on the cross of Christ. In order for us to be forgiven, Jesus must take on the sin of the world. And this causes him a lot of apprehension, anxiety, fear, right? Why would Jesus be fearful of going to the cross? Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Remember, that's why he came. But for this hour and this purpose, I have come. Father, glorify your name. Notice the language there. Same sort of language that he'll use Monday, Thursday night. Remember, he's on the Mount of Olives. He's going to die the next day. He's 
contemplating the cross. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Let the cup of wrath go from me. I don't want to do this thing, but not my will, but yours be done. Does that sound similar? Contemplating the cross again, he says, what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. Let this cup pass from me. And yet it's for this purpose that I've come to this hour. What caused the fear? What caused the foreboding? Contrary to what most people think, it's not the pain of Good Friday that's causing him to fear. You know, Jesus never on the cross said, oh, my head hurts, this crown of thorns is killing me. Doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, my hands hurt, my wrists hurt, and these nails are killing me. Doesn't say, my feet hurt. Doesn't say, if I could just catch one more clean breath of air, I'd be satisfied. Doesn't say any of that. What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? If you want to understand the glory of the cross, you, you got to understand the love that caused him to be forsaken for sinners' sake. Jesus' soul was troubled not because of the pain he was about to endure, but because the first time in his life the Father turned his face away from Jesus. He was forsaken for sinners. God took on sin in Jesus Christ, and the Father and the Son were separated for the first time in eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says it best. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling himself to the world, no longer counting their trespasses against them. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He took on the cup of God's wrath he absorbed all the sin of every man and every woman who had walked the face of the earth from Adam and Eve on and everybody who will ever walk the face of the earth. He took it upon himself on the cross and the Father turned his face away because the Father and sin can't be in the same place. For the first time, he was no longer a son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the beauty of it. He, we get his righteousness when God the Father looks on us because of the cross, he sees not our sin-sick souls. He sees the beauty and the love and the righteousness of sons and daughters of the Most High God. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone in a perfect relationship with the Father. But if it dies, it bears salvation fruit to many souls. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. If you want to see Jesus, look at the cross. That's Jesus when his hour has come in his fullest form, when his glory arrives. But cross-shaped beauty, the cross also ought to draw our hearts. I hope this church, all of us, I hope none of us ever grows weary of looking at the cross with great joy and celebration. I hope we never grow cold to the sacrifice that Jesus went through on our behalf. Look with me at verse 32. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that's the cross, will draw all people to myself. The Pharisees said, Look, the whole world's gone after him. He's drawing all people to himself when I am lifted up. Paul says in Galatians 3 8, if you'll remember, uh, 328, I'm sorry. For in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, 
because of what Jesus did. You're all one in Christ Jesus, sons and daughters restored to the Father. And that precious gift draws men to him. We gaze upon the cross. We marvel upon its beauty. We soak it into our lives and our souls. My goodness, do you ever grow weary of the cross? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to send this precious peace to my soul? Amazing love. How can it be? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken in Christ alone. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ, I live. What a beautiful thing, a fragrant offering. Remember when Mary anoints Jesus towards the end of the gospel, she breaks the whole thing of ointment, this lovely ointment that would have been a year's worth of work, an average uh, salary of a person's years of work, year of work. And she breaks it and just splatters it all over Jesus and, and rubs it in, and it says that she was anointing him for burial. And the fragrance consumed the room. And everybody could smell the fragrant offering that Jesus was about to give. Verse 32. When I am lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself a fragrant offering. Now, note this. Draw. God never push, pushes, pulls, coerces. Uh, he never strong arms you into a relationship. You've got to be drawn by the beauty of the cross to be a Christian. It's got to become an attractive thing because it represents God's love for you. Finally, if that love overwhelms you, if you receive it deep into your soul, then you'll become a cruciformed person. It will begin to shape you and to mold you and to change you. Isn't that what the cross does when we receive it? I think we mess up in teaching our children sometimes. We, we tell them, marry the right person, go to the right school, get the right job, live in a nice house in a great neighborhood, make oodles of money, and your soul will be satisfied. But what happens when you become bankrupt? When, God forbid, you lose that loved one, or the money runs out, or the neighborhood becomes a slum? What happens then? Our value systems are upset by the cross of Christ. We begin to value different things that are eternal and everlasting. You know that word glory? It actually means of heavy weight. It means something that is substantial, that matters, that is precious and everlasting. We see this glory in the cross of Christ as the value systems of the world are turned upside down. Look at verse 25 and you'll see what I'm talking about. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Once we understand the beauty of the cross, it transforms us. And those things of this world that we once thought were so precious and so lovely and, and so desirable, they're not as desirable as they once were. And those things that we once looked at with horror, like the death of a Savior on the cross of Calvary, they become precious beyond all measure and beautiful beyond all measure. And when we soak that in, we live different lives. 
we become more selfless, more generous, kinder, more loving, more humble, because we've taken up the cross of Christ and followed him. So here's the promise. If you want to live a cruciform life, I'll leave it with verses 27 and 28. Father, save me from this hour, but it's for this hour that I've come. Father, glorify your name. The Father's name is glorified when we begin to embrace the cruciform life of the cross. Verse 26, he says, if anyone will serve me, he must follow me so that where I am, there will be my servant also. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see his glory in the precious gift of the cross. We need to see the beauty of that cross and soak it into our lives and hearts. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So we go forth bearing the love of God to this world, and sometimes we'll be the only Jesus they'll ever see. And so live a cruciformed life in love and humble service. Take the values of the world and turn them upside down and begin to live the love of God so that others can see Jesus in your life. To the glory of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.